Open your Bibles if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, continuing in our study this morning. And of course, this morning we come to the very, very well-known love chapter. I think most of us are familiar with it. It's constructed around, if there's one Greek word that everyone knows, it's the word agape. If you've been in the church long at all, you've heard it. It's the word for love. It occurs again and again in this chapter. Uh, this is the chapter, Corinthians chapter 13, that's been used at countless weddings, countless anniversaries, some funerals. Probably should be used at more funerals. It's a really good chapter for funerals. Um, it's, a, it's a passage of incredible relevance, um, especially these last, what, 24 months now, the whole COVID thing and the appropriate response of the church and of believers uh, to COVID, the question of what is it to act in Christian love has been a big part of that. So there's, there's all kinds of questions, I think, that come out. One of the things about a chapter like this, though, that we know so well and we're so familiar with is that we can kind of become dull to it if we're not careful. And yeah, I've heard that before. I read it before. I know that. And so um, we want to be careful that that doesn't happen. One of the questions, for example, we want to be sure to ask uh, as we go through this chapter is exactly what does this word mean? I mean, the word love is complicated enough in English. And it's even more complicated uh, when you get into the Greek language. We're going to ask questions like that this morning. But before we go any farther, let's go ahead and read the passage. And it's, we're going to read the whole chapter uh, because it is so, so significant. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in the first verse. Paul writes, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I deliver my body to be burned but I do not have love, profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. Does not seek its own. It's not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as also I have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. It's a passage that speaks, Father, with great power to our hearts and our minds, Lord. And certainly, Lord, it's a passage that is relevant as we interact with people on a daily basis. It speaks to the kind of people we should be, Lord. So give us wisdom um, as we look to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's start with the questions that naturally arise from the text, and then as we answer those, we're then going to move to, to the, the, the other question is, what did it mean to the Corinthians in their situation? What is Paul saying in that situation? And then from there we can ask the question, what does it say or what does it mean to us? So that's how we'll approach it, as we usually do. So what is meant by this word, 
Agape, that's the first question. It's translated charity in the King James, and that's a really, really good translation. The other question we're going to look at, just so you can kind of anticipate it, is one I mentioned last week, and that is, why is this chapter where it is? Because if you've been reading along in Corinthians, or you know the Corinthian letters, you know that last week we looked at chapter 12, which introduces the idea of spiritual gifts or spiritual things, the charismata, right? And it talked about the, the importance, establishes a general principle, the importance of understanding that the gifts function to build up the body of Christ. The gifts function to bring us together and should never be a cause of division or disunity. Whatever we say about spiritual manifestations or spiritual gifts, it should always be to build the body of Christ, never to tear it apart. So we established that last week. And then next week, we're going to look at chapter 14, which is where, if I can use the expression, Paul goes into the nuts and bolts of how that should work in the fellowship. It's an entirely practical, some might call it a how-to chapter. So you have these two chapters on spiritual gifts, spiritual stuff, and then right in the middle, boom, you have this chapter on love. Why is it there? I mean, these three chapters are pretty clearly a unit talking about spiritual things. Why is the love chapter stuck there in the middle? So that's a question we'll want to answer as well before we go any farther. So first of all, to go back to that original question, what is this word agape? Extremely important word of the New Testament. It's found all over the New Testament. It's found something like ten times. I didn't make an exact count. In this chapter alone, if you've been around the church long at all, you've heard multiple teachings on this, multiple messages on agape. Uh, you've heard there's four different words for love that are translated love in biblical Greek. There is philia. We looked at that a few weeks ago. That's that friendship bond, that friendship love. Uh, there is eros, from which we get our word erotic. It's erotic love. That word doesn't appear in the New Testament. There is a fairly rare word, storgi, which refers very specifically to the love where there's a family connection. And then there's this word agape, which is all over the New Testament. Now, if you, again, if you've been, if you've been around and you've heard this taught or instructed about or preached about, you, you've been told that agape is a love of self-denial. It's a love of putting the welfare of the other person first. It's that kind of a thing. Anybody here ever heard anything different than that? Kind of making an assumption there, right? I think most of us have heard that definition. What I do want to ask, though, when you've heard, you know, a preacher or you know, teacher say that agape love is this self-denial, self-sacrificial, looking out for the other, did they ever say where they got that definition from? You ever wonder where those definitions come from, right? How many have seen the film *The Professor and the Madman*? Oh, you, oh, that's disappointing. You gotta watch it. It's a great movie. For those that haven't, which is obviously quite a few of you, The Professor and the Madman, Mel Gibson and Sean Penn. Put those two together, right? Yeah. It's about, are you ready for this? This is like the most exciting movie you'll ever see. It's about the writing of the Oxford English Dictionary. Does that sound exciting or what? Yeah. Actually, when I saw that, I thought that's going to be the most boring movie I've ever seen. It's a really, really good movie. But, and I, I want to spoil it for you, but one of the, what it talks about is when they went to write the, the first English Dictionary, Oxford English Dictionary, they wanted to trace every single English word all the way from its very first use, every usage of that word, all the way through the history of the language up until the writing of the dictionary. And they wanted examples of every usage. 
so that they would know when you get what I call the arc of a word's history, starting from its first use all the way to now, when you pick up a book written in a certain block of time, you know what the word meant in that block of time. Well, that's like what Greek scholars do on a little bitty scale. Because the scholars who give us all of these resources that you know, the preachers use, they're dealing with a language that was 2,000 years old when the New Testament was written. So you have this 2,000-year history for words, right? And what it meant like 1,500 years ago might not have anything to do with what it means. I mean, look how words change drastically in our language. Think of some of the words that we use relative to like technology that just 20 years ago would have meant, right? No. And so you got a 2,000-year history. You had this incredible arc of a, of, a, of a word's usage. And scholars go back and they find all of these examples. And they go, boom, OK, well, now I know what the word meant there. And when I'm reading something that's there, I know what it means, right? And so when we're looking at Greek, again, 2,000-year-old language, when the New Testament was written, it's 3,500 years, actually, closer now, um, they have a great book. It's called the Septuagint. We talk about this a lot, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the reason that's such a good, great book for you know, scholars and stuff is that when they see how a book was used then, in 200 BC or 100 BC, they go, ah, now I know how that word was used when the New Testament was written. It's a great resource. And the reason, I'm going into all this for a reason, so please bear with me. When we look at this word agape, something extraordinary happens. It's unlike any other Greek word I've ever read about. We can find traces of it not we, scholars, scholars find traces of it all the way back, but never the actual word. The word agape, as it occurs in the New Testament, never occurs. Other forms of it, but never that form. All the way until the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, a bunch of Hebrew scholars in Alexandria, starting in about 200 B.C., they're translating the Old Testament. They go, ah, this is a really good word for us to use. And they use it in that work called the Septuagint. It's used way, way more. There's one other obscure reference before that. And they use it about, oh, I don't know, 12 or 15 times in the Septuagint. But there's one book in the Septuagint that this word agape is used more than any other book. In fact, you, can, you combine all the other uses in the Septuagint and all the other uses in ancient Greek, you find less occurrences of this word than in this one book in the Old Testament. Take a wild guess which book it is. Yes, the Song of Solomon. I'm going, what? No, 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 no. They got the wrong word, right? Because in the Song of Solomon, what Greek word should they be using? Eros, right? Because that's a, it's a beautiful erotic poem. And yeah, but they, don't, they never use it. They use agape, and I'm like, what is going on with this? But as they use it through that book, you can see its meaning change until they come to the very last use of the word. And this is why I've said all of that was just to get to this. Here's the last use. And remember, put yourself in, we always want to put ourselves in the shoes of that original audience, right? The Corinthians know, the Greek-speaking Corinthians, not the Jewish Corinthians, the Greek-speaking Christians know in Corinth, this is a word that doesn't get used very much. And if it does get used, i got to figure out what they mean, right? So this is where they're going to go for a dictionary, right? This is the last use of this word 
And again, another well-known passage, Solomon, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6 and 7. Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. Another passage of Scripture common at weddings, anniversaries, should be used at some funerals, right? Do you catch that line right in the middle, though? Let me read it again. Look for that line right in the middle. It's a powerful defining word, usage of the word. Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as severe as Sheol, which is the place of the dead. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. Actually, a couple of different things there. First of all, his connection of love with jealousy. Love and jealousy are not opposites. The opposite of love is apathy. Love and jealousy are very close. But notice that line right in the middle. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Agape love, whatever it means, because you're very Corinthian, you don't know what it means. It never gets used. Agape love is the very flame of the Lord. It is the very heartbeat of God. It's what makes God tick. It's what moves God. God's heart. It is the heart of God. Agape love is the very heart of the Lord. It's how God really, really feels about love. So with that understanding, let's kind of look at, at its use in this chapter in Corinthians really quickly. He says in the first two verses, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, if I don't have the heartbeat of God, I have become a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, we're talking about spiritual gifts and stuff, and I know all mysteries, all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have this agape love, the heart of God, I am nothing. That tells me a couple of different things right off. It tells me that to have the heart of God is a necessary requirement for any meaningful exercise of any Christian virtue or any Christian activity, or anything we might connect with, with being a good Christian, or walking out our faith, any spiritual exercise, if it's not rooted in the heart of God, an expression of His character, it's nothing. Verse 3, if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, you don't get much more self-sacrificial than that. If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor. If I surrender my body to be burned, but I don't have this heartbeat of God, it profits me nothing. I can sacrifice everything that I am, everything that I have, but if I haven't got this heart of God, there's nothing there. Verses 4 to 8 is where the definition really comes in. I remember talking about the heartbeat of God. When you hear the word love, think heartbeat of God. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. 
Love does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I'm tempted to say that agape meets that definition, but that's actually backwards. Agape, the heartbeat of God, is where that definition comes from. You know another way to look at it? This is Jesus. Just put the name of Jesus in that passage every time you see the word love. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not jealous. Jesus doesn't brag. Jesus isn't arrogant. Jesus doesn't act unbecomingly. That word unbecomingly, by the way, is, um, is askimos. Askimos. You hear that a lot in Greece today when people don't like things. Like you put a plate of food in them, they don't like them. Oh, it's askimos. Right? It means very, very unattractive. It's not like not gorgeous, just like repulsive. Love is not repulsive doesn't seek its own. Jesus is not provoked. Thank you, Lord. Jesus does not take into account a wrong suffered. We should all say thank you, Lord, to that. Does, Jesus doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. Jesus rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. Now, one quick note. I was talking about this from last week's perspective with somebody we were swapping some emails and this question of that word fails what it means it doesn't mean fail like you fail an exam it means fail like you're walking off a bridge and it fails it means you come to the end of something right so love never comes to its end jesus never comes to its end agape love is the whole of the character of christ the very flame of the Lord. It is the character of Jesus fashioned within us and expressed outwardly from us. The character of Jesus fashioned in us, expressed outwardly, which brings us to the second question. Actually, it answers it, which is why is this chapter where it is? Because in chapter 12, he talked about the gifts of the Spirit, the manifestations, all that spiritual stuff. And then he follows up with, keep your mind on love because then he goes on to, again, the nuts and the bolts of how spiritual manifestations should be practiced in the church, what it should look like. What Paul is essentially saying to the Corinthians is this. I've introduced the subject of Christian manifestations, spiritual gifts, and we're going to complete the discussion over here. But before we go any farther, we got something we got to get straightened out. we got to establish something before we go any farther, and that's what Christian love is all about. Everything comes down to the character of Christ. And the reason that is so critical is that we simply cannot apply our understanding of what love is and expect to understand this chapter. Because when I think about the imperative that Jesus gave us to love one another, I think of that in terms of my love. You know, at my best, my compassion, my care, my concern. If I can just amp that up enough, if I can just, you know, inject some steroids into my compassion, into my concern, that I'll reach that level that Jesus is talking about. That's got nothing to do with it. Because if it, if it originates in me, it's the very flame of John Maropolis. That's a dead-end street, I assure you. It has to be the very flame of God, the person. 
Christ, right? Now, to finish off the definition, actually, to finish the chapter, Paul goes on to talk about this whole matter of now we see in a mirror dimly. We see in part, we know in part, right? The whole idea of the, of the mirror is a beautiful part of the chapter. If you've ever been to Corinth and you go into the Corinth Museum, you see a beautiful display of mirrors because that was a big thing for them. Ooh, the Corinthians were very proud of their mirrors. They were renowned throughout the known world for their beautiful, polished bronze mirrors. And they were, again, very proud of it. Of course, a polished bronze mirror at its best is a pretty lousy representation of what somebody looks like. All you have to do is go off and find a, a pond with flat water and you get a much better image, right? Paul is saying, look, you guys think you're so spiritual? You got all these gifts going around? Guess what you are? You're at your best. One of those lousy brazen mirrors. Right? You're at your best like an immature child that has so much left to learn. Which, by the way, Paul makes clear we all are. He said, when I reasoned as a child, I, you know, when I was a child, reasoned child, became a man, felt like a man, but now, he said, we see dimly. Paul's putting himself in that I don't know yet category, right? Paul is saying there's so much we have left to learn, and that is why we want to get our minds off what we think love is and come to focus on the person of Christ. He said, now we see in a mirror dimly, then we see face to face. Wow, that's a promise. There's going to be a day we're going to have a face-to-face -face with Jesus. And we're going to understand things so much better there. Right? So what did all this mean to the Corinthian church? I think we've probably pretty well answered that. It's a necessary step in understanding for us to ask what did it mean to them so we can ask what it means to us. Well, I would go back to that verse we looked at last week. Remember chapter 12, verse 2? He says, when you were pagans, you were led astray to the dumb idols. Right? Because remember, everybody in this church came out of a pagan background. There's no second generation Christians in this church. They're all right out of paganism, right? Only ones that weren't were the Jewish Christians, and he's not talking to them in this chapter. He's talking to those ones that were pagans before. He's really clear of that in chapter 12. He's talking to ex-pagans. He said, remember when you were pagans? You were led astray by all of these dumb idols. And then in chapter 13, he makes this interesting statement if I have all these spiritual gifts but not love, what am I like? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's a direct reference to how they used to worship. Because the pagan temples in Corinth, they had a lot of that stuff going on. Gongs and cymbals and they used, they would even set up empty jars at the back of the pagan temples to serve as amplifying systems. Because they didn't have sound systems, right? And they discovered that if they put empty brass jars at the back of the temple, when whoever spoke, spoke, it would hit that brass jar and echo back into the room. Like it made, it made the whole room an echo chamber, right? Well, Paul's saying, remember how you were back in those days? You were just like an empty echo chamber, right? None of that, none of that carries over into this experience. You need a whole new experience of what spirituality is. You need a whole new experience of what it is to be godly. You need a whole new paradigm, if we can use that word. That paradigm is Jesus. That's the lesson for us. Because, you know, we didn't, no, we didn't come in, most of us, I don't think anybody here came from a background of, you know, worshiping in the temple of Dionysius. No, we probably don't have that experience. We have our own assumptions. We have our own assumptions of what Christian love should look like. And we need to be just as cautious as they needed to be to separate ourselves from our expectations, our ideas of what Christianity should look like. It's got to look different, right? Right? 
See, one of the most dangerous mistakes we can make is to think we're so much different than them. No, we're actually, we're a lot like them. We just, the details are different. Our assumptions are different, right? Right? You want to know how you can spot a bad assumption about Christian love, what it is? Read the Gospels. I tried this. It works. Read the Gospels until you find something Jesus says or does that doesn't sit with you. Read the Gospels until you find something that Jesus says or does, and you go, well, that's not very nice, right? Let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 17. Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Because you know if what Jesus does doesn't look right to us, he isn't the one that's wrong. We are, right? That shows us where we need to adjust something. Right? Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17. Peter, James, and John had that incredible experience. When they come down, what happens? There's this big crowd of people, and they're waiting for Jesus. And this guy bolts through the crowd, and he falls on his knees before Jesus, and he says, Lord, save my son. My son is a lunatic. And it's a, def it's a reference to the, to the moon because they attributed epilepsy to the moon. So the kid was, a, was an epileptic, is what he was, right? And he has these seizures, and they throw him into the fire. So the kid probably has burns on his body, even at this moment, right? And it throws him in the water. He's probably almost drowned, right? Lord, I brought him to your disciples, and they could not do anything. Please have mercy on my son. Now, does that or does that not touch the empathetic heart of all of us? If it doesn't, you need help, right? This poor man's son is an epileptic, and he's at the end of himself to do anything about it. And he comes and he falls before Jesus. What's Jesus' response? Oh, you wicked and perverse generation. Oh, that's nice. I might think twice before I fall on my knees before Jesus. If I'm going to hear that, yeah, you wicked perverse generation. Where's love in that? Well, I'll tell you where love is in that. Jesus eventually heals the boy, and it doesn't take long. But before he does, he addresses the man's need. And he addresses the disciple's shortcoming. Because after all, which is more important? If he heals his kid of epilepsy, but that's as far as it goes, what does that mean? That means a man and a healed epileptic son both go to hell. You know, they have the exact same experience. This is an exact parallel to this over at HeartReach. And Pastor Joyce and I have discussed this many times. People will come into HeartReach and they'll go, how many babies did you save today? And Joyce will go, well, you know, that's really not what we're about. Freaks them out. But isn't that, you're a pregnancy center, isn't that what you're about? You know, saving babies? She said, well, yeah, but, you know, Last I looked, Jesus is the one who saves. Because you know, if a, if a, if, if a woman or even a couple comes in with an with a, with a unplanned critical pregnancy and you talk them into, into not aborting the child and they save the baby and they go out the door, what have you done? Of eternal value. Really nothing. Because what's, you know what's going to happen if all you do is convince her not to abort the baby and she leaves? She's going to probably come back in 24 months. That's documented. And then what are you going to see in 18 months? The kid that was born. Back with the same issue. Yeah, that's all, that's all a matter of statistical research. It's going to happen. But if you can change the lives of those people by introducing them to the person of Christ and save the baby, that's the win-win. That's the goal, to introduce people to Jesus. So Jesus does something in this passage 
that at first glance appears very offensive to me. That tells me that my understanding of what love is needs to change. It tells me I need to back up, get a bigger picture, and bring the eternal part of the relationship into the equation. When I see that happen, that's always a reminder to me that it's my definition that needs to change. Because like I said, he's never wrong. He's always right. Because he is love. The love of Christ isn't simply my love amped up. Doesn't matter how far I amp my love up, it's still mine. The love of Christ is the love born of his character. And that's what the shepherd's about. It's a love that can only be expressed. It can only be expressed by the manifestation of the indwelling presence of his spirit in me. Christ in you, the hope of glory, the text says. Because I don't have anything else to offer you. And truthfully, we really don't have that much else to offer one another. But what we do have is Christ within. Manifest that. Manifest that. We manifest the love of God. Father, I thank you for this chapter, Lord. And um, it is, Lord. It's a chapter that we hear it so many times. Again, we get used to it, and then we kind of go through it, and there it is. But Lord, I really believe, Lord, this chapter challenges us as believers in a way that maybe we haven't even been challenged before if we haven't looked at it this carefully. Because, Father, we, Father, we want to be obedient to your word. And when, when, when Jesus says, love one another, we want to do that. And so we really set ourselves to doing that. And in truth, we find it doesn't go very far and it doesn't accomplish very much. But, Lord, when we give you, Father, room to do what it is that you want to do, Father, when we, through our time in prayer, our time in your word, Lord, our time in fellowship with one another. Father, that deliberate choice we make every day to open the door of our heart and our mind to what you want to do, Lord, when we make that choice and we begin to, Father, even to see the smallest inklings of what your character manifested through us can do, Lord, we begin to see what it is to love one another even as Jesus loved. Because that's the command. Love one another even as he did. Father, that's a really tall order for us. Because our, our default, Lord, is just to reach back into our own ability, our own strength, our own whatever we got, Lord. And that's a dead end. Give us wisdom, Lord. We have to rise above that. Open the door to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.